Father, we ask, I ask, Lord, that you would make this passage of Scripture live to each one that hears it. I pray that we would be able to see and to hear and to smell the judgment that is to come. That, Lord, you would give us a heart of wisdom to prepare and to be ready for that great divide, that great day that is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that, you, in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, wrath, I'm sorry, righteousness, there will be wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law, <coughs> excuse me, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The great evangelist of the 19th century, D.L. Moody, was once asked to preach at a particular church where the people were in the habit of leaving before the sermon was over. So when Mr. Moody stood up to preach that day, he said to them, uh, I'm going to preach to two classes of people. I'm going to preach to the sinners first and then to the saints. And so he began to address the sinners. And he went on for a while, and when he was done, he said, Okay, I'm done addressing the sinners. You all can leave now. That was the very first time nobody left early that day. <laughs> of course, the reason is that nobody wants to class themselves with sinners. We think that sinners are all those other people that are worse off than me, right? Will Rogers used to say, I always like to hear a man talk about himself because then I never hear anything but good which is absolutely true. There is the tendency in all of us to criticize the bad we see in other people and exalt the good we see in ourselves. That's the kind of person Paul's addressing in Romans 2. It's the person who's criticizing the bad in others but exalting the good in themselves. 
Now, let's, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Romans, but think back with me to Romans chapter 1. In verses 18 to 32, Paul has a particular group of people in mind. He says in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And he goes on to tell what their lives are like. He says their lives are characterized by sexual impurity, degrading passions, and a depraved mind, that they've given themselves over to idolatry and to homosexuality and to all manner of evil. Now, what group did Paul have in mind in chapter 1 when he was saying these things? Was it the person who had the Scripture or the person who didn't have the Scripture? It was the person without the Bible. We know that because he says that the reason they know about God is from creation. Not from the Scripture, but from what they can see around them. He says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So chapter 1, Paul is dealing with the Gentile, the heathen, the man without the revelation of God. He knows that there is a God by creation, but that's it. And he says in verse 20, This man is without excuse. Well, now he goes to chapter 2, and he has a different group of people in mind, and he tells us in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse. But it's not the Gentile anymore. I believe what the person Paul is addressing in chapter 2 is the Jew. And the reason I believe that, there's several reasons. Because in chapter 2, he mentions in verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Now, if Paul was just addressing the heathen, the Gentiles here, I don't think that he would go into specifics about these two classes of people. He would just address them all as one big lump. Also, in verse 12, he mentions those (coughs) who have sinned without the law, they will perish without the law, and those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Well, the Gentiles didn't have the law. So it'd be irrelevant for Paul to be bringing in the law if he's addressing Gentiles. Also, verse 17, he says, but if you bear the name Jew. Now, it doesn't seem to me like Paul is totally shifting gears when he gets to verse 17. It seems like he's has the same group in mind that he's been addressing for this entire chapter, from verses 1 through 16, and then verse 17 is just a continuation of what he's already been saying. And so, in verse 17, it becomes explicit who he's talking to. He's talking to Jews. And he's talking to self-righteous Jews. He's talking about two judgmental Jews. Now, what these Jews need, Paul knows, is a lesson on the judgment of God. And that's what he gives them in verses 1 to 16. We know that because he brings up the phrase, the judgment of God, over and over and over throughout this section. In verse 1... Let me see if that... No, it's not verse 1, it's verse 2. He says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And then we hear him in verse 3 saying, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or again, in verse 5, 
He ends that sentence by saying, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, three times in a row, he's mentioning the judgment of God. And then he winds up everything in verse 16 by saying, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So four times within this paragraph, Paul has been mentioning the judgment of God. That's his theme. That's his focus. That's his laser focus. He, the central idea of the passage is God is going to bring judgment, not only upon Gentiles, but also upon Jews. And let me tell you about that judgment is what Paul is about to say. I want to describe this judgment to you. Now, we're going to look at seven different principles related to the judgment of God. But we're going to get to four of them today. We don't have time for all seven. So this is going to be a two-part series. Next Sunday, we'll finish the last three. We're going to take a look at the first four that come up in our text today. The first one is this. The judgment of God is going to be just. Now, you understand what I mean by just. Like justice. When justice is served, that which is right and true has been accomplished, right? God's judgment will be just. Justice will be served when God judges. In in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you which... In that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You have no excuse. How many parents here at one time or another told your child, there was no excuse for what you did? Now, why do we tell them that? Because we want them to know, I'm going to have to punish you, and you deserve the punishment I'm going to give you. It's just that you receive this spanking, or whatever punishment you decide to mete out. When God tells... These Jews, you have no excuse. He's saying judgment is coming and that judgment, whatever it happens to be, will be just. You deserve it. You have it coming to you. Not only that, but in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls. Rightly falls on those who practice such things. If you have the King James Version, it says, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth upon those who practice such things. And actually, that's a very literal translation. If you were to look this up in Young's literal or an interlinear version of the Bible, that's exactly what it says in the Greek. This judgment will be according to truth. It will be according to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There will be no falsehood mixed in with this particular judgment. And not only that, in verse 5, he ends the sentence by describing this as the righteous judgment of God. Now, justice is one of God's attributes. It makes him, makes him who he is. It's one of his character qualities, just like love and grace, mercy. Justice is one of those things that makes God God. So, of course, justice has to be that determining factor when it comes to his judgment. In fact... Over in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 4, it describes God as the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Now, sometimes human judges make mistakes. Right? I mean, just because we're fallible, we make mistakes. And sometimes judges will 
let a guilty person go free or condemn an innocent person. I made mistakes when I was raising my boys because Josiah would come to me and Jonathan would come to me and they both have different stories. Jonathan would say, he did this. Josiah would say, he did that. And so what am I supposed to do? I wasn't there. I didn't see what happened. And so I would do my best to try to come up with a a wise judgment, but I'm sure I made mistakes in handling the punishments that were meted out to my boys. So we make mistakes because we're, we're simply human. But God knows all the facts. There is no fact that escapes his notice. He knows everything that has taken place. He knows the motives behind every action that has ever taken place. And so his judgment is going to be perfect. So that's the first thing we need to see about this judgment. It's going to be just. It will be right. It will be perfect. Second thing, this judgment is inescapable. The judgment of God is inescapable. We see that in verse 3. Paul says, Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you really think you're going to escape it? Of course, the obvious answer is, No, you're not going to escape. Nobody is going to escape God's judgment. It's impossible to escape. Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived will be judged by God. They'll come under his judgment. So no, it's not possible to escape. He says in verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. There's no ifs, no maybes, no mites. God is very dogmatic upon this point. You are storing up wrath. Every person will be judged by God. Uh, Not only that, in verse 6, he says, who will render to each person according to his deeds. God will do that. You don't have to wonder about this. (laughs) It's absolutely certain. Judgment is coming. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. All of us will face God. Verse 12, he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. It's not, well, they might... If God's having a good day that day, maybe you'll escape. No, you're going to perish without the law if you've sinned under the law. It's it's a fact. So we should have no doubt about this truth. God is absolutely dogmatic when he speaks about it, and so we can be dogmatic when we speak about it. Now, sometimes criminals do escape judgment under our jurisprudence system. I remember learning about the Nazi war crimes that were committed. And there was one particular man, his name was Joseph Mengele. Have you ever heard of that name? So he was a he was over the doctors. And he was using the Jews as human guinea pigs to perform experiments upon them. Severely cruel and sadistic experiments. Like taking two twins and sewing them together back to back to try to make a Siamese twin out of these two. And eventually they Uh, they experienced gangrene and they died a few days later because of that. Or chopping off arms or legs needlessly. Amputations. Or uh, deliberately injecting them with um, the germs of typhus or other deadly diseases. Or putting them in ice water for three hours straight just to see if the human body could take that. Or putting them out in the snow 
sub-zero degree temperatures naked just to see how long they could live under those conditions. I mean, terrible things, terrible things. The thing is that he escaped when the Russians came in towards the end of the war, the Red Army. He got out just a few days earlier from Auschwitz. He fled and made it over to, um, let me get my facts straight here, to Argentina and then later to Brazil, and we were never able to find him. So he lived out the, the days of his life being unnoticed, undetected. He was never convicted for his war crimes, although a few other people were. He never was. And when we think about that, it just makes something inside of us want to scream, Injust! Injustice! But there's coming a day when Joseph Mengele and Adolf Hitler and every other man who's done perpetrated wicked crimes against humanity will stand before Almighty God. It's inescapable. It's inescapable. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, there's, it tells us of a time when people are going to wish that they could hide, but they won't be able to. In Revelation 6.16, people will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So there's coming a day when people are going to scream, Hide me! Rocks fall on me! Mountains! Let me get under you somehow! I don't want to face this wrath of the Lamb! But there's no one and no thing that will be able to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And we even think, we read this verse and we scratch our heads thinking, the wrath of the Lamb? I thought Jesus, gentle and mild, walked around patting kids on the heads, you know, gentle, and he's nice and kind. No, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to burn with fury against his enemies and against sin, and he will be the judge. God said that Jesus, he's committed all judgment to the Son, and Christ himself will sit enthroned, and all mankind will come before him, and he'll separate them like the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he's going to say to the goats, depart from me, you evil ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus Christ is going to say that. Jesus is going to say that. So there's no escape. Whoever you are, we will stand before God. Nobody's immune from wrath. Think about God's wrath is like an atomic bomb. And God from heaven has let it go and is hurtling towards earth. There's only one bomb shelter that can withstand this bomb. And that bomb shelter is called Christ. And unless you get into that bomb shelter, you will be eternally destroyed. The bomb's heading to earth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's coming down. And unless you get into Christ, my friend, you will perish for all eternity. So you need to get into Christ. He's the bomb shelter. If you're in that shelter, you're safe forever. Not only are you safe, you are filled with joy and happiness forever. But outside of that bomb shelter, everyone perishes. Christ is the delineator of salvation. So that's our second principle of judgment. It's inescapable. The first one is that it's just. The third one is that this judgment of God is going to be severe on the unrepentant. We, we receive that truth from Revela- or excuse me, Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Notice verse 4. 
Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, notice in verse 4, God is delaying his judgment temporarily. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? That word patience means long-suffering. It means that God is restraining himself from lashing out in wrath against evil. He's restraining himself because of that patience and that tolerance and that kindness. He's not... Let me put it this way. The fact that you woke up this morning in your bed and not in hell was because of God's kindness to you and his tolerance to you and his patience, his long-suffering. God is long-suffering. He's, he's suffering long. Day after day after day, God suffers by seeing the evil being perpetrated in this wicked world go on and on and on, and he doesn't do anything immediately about it. He doesn't snap his fingers and consign the world to damnation. He waits. He, he restrains Christ from coming back. Jesus still hasn't come back. And it's because God is kind and tolerant and patient. But his patience won't last forever. The water keeps rising. Notice verse 5 talks about storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Now what person is storing up wrath according to verse 5? The person who has a stubborn and unrepentant heart, that's the one. And it's like a dam, and the creek is flowing in, and so the water keeps rising higher and higher and higher. Now it's 20 feet high, now it's 50 feet high, now it's 100 feet high. The water just keeps building, and the weight of that water is massive. And eventually you start to see this, this crack forming in the dam, and you know it's only a matter of time until that thing blows. And the dam is split. And like a great tidal wave, that water rushes down and, and obliterates everything in its path below. God's wrath is like that. It's being stored up. Stored up day after day after day because of stubbornness and unrepentance. And it rises and rises and rises. But there's coming a day when God is no longer going to be long-suffering and patient and tolerant and kind. There will be a day for him to release his wrath upon evil in the world. I know this is what, probably what you wanted to hear on Mother's Day, folks. But it is the next text in the book of Romans. <laughs> and we're pretty committed to going through the Bible. So I, I guess it's what God wanted us to hear. <laughs> okay. Notice the emphasis in these two verses on repentance. Did you notice that when you read it through? In verse 4, God's kindness is supposed to lead people to repentance. But verse 5 says, if you don't repent, if you have a stubborn heart and an unrepentant heart, you just store up for yourself wrath, for the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Do you see the importance of repentance? from these two verses. If a person repents, they will escape God's wrath. If a person is stubborn and won't repent, that wrath will be poured out upon him. Am I, is that clearly taught here or am I making this up, folks? Do you see that like I do? I, I see it clear as day. 
Repentance is what enables a person to escape. How then can anybody teach that you don't need to repent to be saved? But some people do. They say all you need is simple faith. And if you add repentance, then it becomes a gospel of works. And you're adding works to faith. My friend, repentance is included in saving faith. It take out any coin. You've got a heads and tails. Well, repentance is the tails. Um, the heads is faith. Faith is turning to Christ. Well, repentance is turning from sin. You have to do both. You have to turn from sin in order to turn to Christ. They're included together. So repentance is absolutely crucial and essential if any man is to be saved from the wrath of God. Let me make that as clear as I possibly can. And if you have not repented, you need to repent today. You shouldn't put this thing off. You shouldn't say, well, when I get old and I've sowed my wild oats and I've had my fun, maybe someday I'll get around to repenting. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know if you're going to be cut down today and have to face God today without having ever repented. And you are the guy in verse 5 that had a stubborn and unrepentant heart that was storing up wrath day after day after day. Repentance is the way of escape. Remember John the Baptist says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And I'm warning you. I don't know how many of you are genuine believers or not. If you're not a genuine Christian, flee from the wrath to come by repenting. Repent. Well, what does it mean to repent? So I'll do it if you just tell me what it is. Okay, let's talk about that. It's a turning from sin. It's a turning from sin. The literal definition of repentance is to change the mind. And so some people said all it means is just to change your mind. But I think it goes deeper than that. It does start in the heart and the mind. It does start there. Because you begin to hate your sin. All of us are lovers of sin. We're born that way. We're born into the world loving sin. There comes a time in our life when when we repent, we begin to hate the sin that we have committed. We don't want to go on committing it day after day anymore. We want to live to God's glory and pleasure. So it starts in our mind, it continues into our heart where we feel a desire for holiness and a repulsion towards going on committing the same sins over and over. But it will show up in your life if you've experienced true repentance. Because John the Baptist talks about the fruits of repentance. He says, you need to go on and bear the fruit of repentance. Well, the fruit is action. It's a changed life. So, if you have changed your mind about sin, I don't love it anymore, I hate it, you've changed your heart towards sin, eventually, and I would say probably sooner rather than later, you're going to see some actions dovetailing with that new change of heart and change of mind. And you're going to see, uh, you're, you're going to see love for God displayed in many ways. You'll see love for other people displayed in all kinds of ways. You'll see a desire to bring glory to God come to surface from your life. It will be your heart's desire to please Him, to show love to this one who has saved you and bestowed grace upon you. So that's repentance. It's a turning from sin with the whole being, uh, mind, emotion, and will. So if there is no repentance, there is no salvation. And if someone does repent, the whole trajectory of their life takes on a new direction. When we are born into this world, we're born with a sinful nature. 
And so we learn to dabble in those kinds of sins that bring pleasure to us, whatever they happen to be. Sins of the mind, sins of the flesh. But when we meet Christ, repentance takes place. And rather than going this direction towards my old life of wickedness, I make an about face and I go towards Christ. And if I go towards Christ, I'm going towards holiness now because Christ is absolutely holy in every regard. So that's what we're talking about. So my question to each one of you is, have you repented? I'm not saying have you joined a church. Or have you even confessed Christ as your Savior? Have you repented? Make absolutely sure that you are a repenter. Because that, that describes the person who's got into the bomb shelter. There's nobody outside of the bomb shelter who's never repented. Everyone who comes to know Christ has repented of sin because they turned their back on the old life. They're walking a new life where Christ is the goal. Christ is the center. So there's no important, no more important question I could ask you this morning is have you truly repented of sin? There's a lot of false forms of repentance. Judas did not repent. Judas felt remorseful, but they're not the same thing. He went out and hanged himself. He wasn't trusting in Christ as his Savior. He gave up. He, he just, out of depression, gave up entirely and went out and hanged himself. A lot of religious people have never repented. Some Christian leaders, some pastors have never repented. Repentance has to do with the heart and turning from evil and turning to Christ. So that's the third principle we need to learn about judgment. It's going to be severe on those who have never repented. Number four, the judgment of God will usher us into everlasting joy or everlasting misery. Those are verses 7 to 10. Notice, let's take verse 7 and 10 together and then take verses 8 and 9 together. Okay, here's verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good Seek for glory and honor and immortality, comma, which equals eternal life. And then he goes on to amplify on that in verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now next week we'll dig into this a little bit more deeply. It, it sounds like you can earn your salvation by trying to do good, and that's not what Paul has in mind. We'll, we'll talk about that more next Sunday. But all I want you to see right now is the destination that Paul is outlining. There's two of them. Verse 7 and 10 go together, and the destination here is honor, immortality, eternal life. Verse 10, glory, honor, and peace. These are the words that he uses to describe the blessedness of the saved. Eternal life. It consists of glory, honor, and immortality and peace. Now what's the other destination in verses 8 and 9? But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, God will render wrath and indignation. And then he explains that in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So he uses four words to describe this destination. Wrath, indignation, 
tribulation, and distress of soul. And we know these things go on forever because in verse 7 he mentions that the life is eternal. Well, these other characteristics are also eternal. Jesus said in Matthew 25, I think it's 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the others to eternal life. The punishment has the same duration as the life does. They're both, he uses the same word in the same sentence, eternal, ionos. It can't have different meanings in the same sentence and describing two different destinations, but there are people that say that the, that hell lasts for a temporary period of time and then people are annihilated or else everybody is saved and they go over to heaven. The problem is Matthew 25, 46. If the life is eternal and everyone believes that's true, then the punishment is also eternal. So what have we got here? We have wrath, indignation, tribulation, and distress brought on those whose lives is characterized by evil. And we have eternal life, glory, honor, peace, immortality that will be brought to those whose life is characterized by doing good. Now, my question when I was thinking through this this last week was, do we really believe what the Bible says about that? Do we really believe it? I don't think we do. Um, to be Just to be honest, if we did, how could we live the, the kind of lives that we do live? Just to be honest with you. How could we? I think we're asleep when it comes to these realities. We don't, we don't meditate on them very much. We don't think about them enough. We don't think about eternity. How else can we go about our day, day after day after day, making no efforts to win the lost? If they're going to wrath, indignation, tribulation, and distress of soul, and we know it, and we do nothing about it, we don't really believe it. We say we do, but we don't. Right? I mean, I I can't make any other sense out of my life and the lives of all the people I see. (laughs) And if we really believe that we are headed to everlasting joy and happiness... How can we take our life uh, as nonchalantly as we sometimes do? You see, if, if we could learn to live every day, let's say every moment of every day in light of eternity, that's biblical holiness. Think about that. That's biblical holiness. And that's what we need to start learning how to do. Even in the mundane things. Everyday things, going to work. I'm going to show you some passages a little bit later. So God is very concerned about the mundane, everyday, ordinary kinds of things that we don't think are very important. God's going to actually bring those things up for judgment on judgment day. Every idle word that we speak will be judged by God, according to Jesus, Matthew 12. So, when I think about everlasting joy, and everlasting misery. The, the best picture I get in my mind is Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Remember how the book starts? He has this book in his hand and he's reading that he lives in the city of destruction and he knows he has to escape somehow and he starts talking to his family. We all need to escape and they they think he's laughing and kidding and joking around. And so... They're trying to persuade him to stay, that he's being deluded, and he sticks his fingers in his ears, and he yells, Life! Life! 
eternal life as he runs out of the city of destruction. See, that's a person who believes in eternity. That's how they act when they really believe what we're reading in our Bibles today. We, we need to really believe this. And we need to let every moment of each day be influenced by the thought of eternity to come. Because that's when we're doing that, we're going to be seeking to glorify God in every action, every attitude, everything we say, everything we do. And it just makes sense to the believer. He says in verse 7 and verse 10, he speaks about glory as part of this eternal life. What does he mean? Glory. Well, the Bible says we're going to be glorified together with Christ. It says that our bodies are going to be glorified. In Romans 8, it says we're going to experience the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We are going to see God's glory much clearer than we do now. And Jesus even taught that we will shine like the sun in the glory, the kingdom of our Father. So there's going to be glory that we're going to experience. God's glory, and we are going to have a measure of glory in the kingdom to come. What about honor? This eternal life includes honor. Well, what does that mean? I believe he's talking about God honoring us, which seems completely backwards, I know, but I believe that's true. For example, First uh, Peter 1.7, Peter brings this up. In First Peter 1.7, he says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, what's Peter saying? He's saying that a person's proven faith, genuine faith, is going to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation, the return of Christ. He's going to experience honor by Christ. And Jesus even taught this himself in Luke chapter 12. Look at Luke 12, verse 37. He said, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and he's going to come up and wait on them. Now, those are the words of Jesus. You and I are going to sit at a banquet table and Jesus himself is going to be the waiter, according to his words here. He's going to come and serve us. Now that just blows the mind. Christ deserves to be served by us, but he's going to come and serve those of us who have served him faithfully in this lifetime. He's going to honor us. He's going to say, you, you sit here. Let me bring you a napkin. Let me bring you your, your drink. Let me bring you your food. <laughs> you know, He's going to come and wait upon his people. So there's going to be glory. There's going to be honor, elevation by Christ himself. And there's going to be peace, which will be a welcome relief from this world, won't it? I mean, you think there's so, so little peace, true peace to be found in our world. We've got gang violence going on, people, people being murdered like we just heard of this morning. Wars. Murders taking place, rapes, and, and even to a lesser degree, you have squabbles and fighting and quarreling that goes on in marriages and in churches. There's just a lot of unrest in this world. But in the world to come, there's going to be nothing but true and lasting peace because there's going to be only one will 
in the world to come. That's God's will. And all of us are going to agree with it and love it and carry it out. And so if there's only one will and nobody's fighting against that will, there can be no unrest, no conflict. There will be blessed peace between all people and between us and God. So that's what this life to come is characterized by, glory and honor and peace. Now let me just draw out a few concluding remarks this morning from our from our study. We've seen that this judgment to come is going to be just, inescapable, severe towards the unrepentant, and will usher into either everlasting joy or misery. Those are things clearly taught in Romans chapter 2. So, if that's true, if there's no escaping this judgment, then wisdom dictates that we start preparing for that judgment now. Right? It would be, it would be a fool if we just sort of waited and hoped for the best when we saw God face to face. So how do we prepare to meet God? Well, the first thing, the first thing we need to do is stop neglecting so great a salvation. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 2-3 says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we need to stop neglecting that and rather give attention to so great a salvation. And what that means is we need to be right with God. And we've talked about that. We need to repent. We need to turn from sin. We need to be converted. In fact, true repentance really equals conversion. If you want to make it simple, you want to know what conversion is? It's true repentance. <clears throat> we need to be born again. If you've never been born again, that must take place in your life or you won't be prepared to meet God. If you are basically the same person inside that you've always been, then you're lost. No matter how many times you go to church or how many chapters you've read of the Bible or how many times you prayed, you need a, a renovation of nature, an internal change, and only the Spirit of God can do that work. So we need to get right with God. But let's assume that you are right with God. How do you prepare for the judgment to come? We, we get prepared for this judgment by surrendering every aspect of our life to Him. By surrendering. We, we train ourselves to learn to live each moment of each day in light of eternity. Eternity's coming, so this decision is not so little anymore because if I make this decision for the glory of God, it becomes big. Let me just give you a, a couple of examples. Um, in Mark 9.41, Jesus said, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Now, giving a cup of water is not a big deal, right? I mean, water is pretty much free, almost. <laughs> Take a cup of water, give it to somebody because they're thirsty. Jesus said, you're not going to lose your reward for that. Now, we might think that's totally insignificant and forget about having ever done it. God doesn't forget those things. God's keeping a tally of what you do for him, for his namesake, for his glory. See, if you do that for your own namesake or for your own glory, you have no reward. But if you're doing it out of faith and for the glory of God, rewards are being accumulated and you will enjoy those rewards in the life to come. When it comes to eternal life and glory and honor and peace, these rewards are going to come back to you and you're going to enjoy them in the life to come. Let me give you another example. Colossians chapter 3. 
Look at uh, Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Now in this context, he's talking about the slave who's working for his master. And we can change that a little bit since we don't have slaves today. A person working for his boss. Let's just change it a little bit. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Did you hear that? You're going to receive back the reward of the inheritance. And in context, he's talking about doing your normal, you, you go to work in Folsom, or I go to work cleaning windows, or whatever you happen to do. You think, well, God doesn't see this. God doesn't care about this. Yes, he does. He's watching what you do when you go to work. And he's going to reward you on how you work. Are you doing that work for him or for yourself only? So I want to invest great gravity and weight and importance to every part of your life because God sees all and all will come up for review on this great judgment day. And in order to prepare for that day, begin to live each moment in light of that judgment to come. I know that's a tall order and it's something that we have to train ourselves and retrain ourselves each day on. But that's my challenge. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cast that challenge out to you. Make it your daily prayer. Lord, let me live today. Each decision that I make today in light of eternity. There is an old saying that says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Eternal happiness and eternal misery are right around the bend for every person. We think it's, oh, it's way off. You know, you're 29 years old. I've got 40, 50 years to go. Do you know how fast 40 or 50 years can go? <laughs> I do, because <laughs> I'm 58 now, and I've lived a lot of those years. They go fast. Did I live my life for Christ to the full? No. And I'm ashamed to say that. I haven't lived it to the full. But I want to recommit my life today to living for him. I want all of you to have no regrets when Christ returns or when you step into his presence that you've lived your life for him. It's right around the corner. Each of us has this hourglass and the sands are drifting through, drifting, drifting, drifting. More and more sands are going. We don't have very much longer before all the sand's gone. Some of you have a lot less than others. What are you doing right now to prepare for eternity? Are you giving each day to God and seeking to live for His pleasure? That, that's what God is asking of each one of His disciples, each one of His followers. Now's the time to run the race. Now's the time to live for Christ and sacrifice for other people and bear Christ's reproach and spread His gospel and lay down your life for the brethren. In eternity, there's not going to be any suffering for Christ. There's not going to be any reproach that we have to take up for Christ. In eternity, there's not going to be any lost people to witness to. Right now is the only time we can experience these things. When you die and go to be with Christ, it's over. Now's the time to run with everything we have. And so may we do that to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Lord, we pray that you would inspire us and motivate us. Forgive us, Lord, for those things we've done for our own glory and for our own pleasure, and have not consulted you, and have not considered you. Lord, we want to be prepared for that day of judgment, and we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
We want that, Lord. And so help us to recommit ourselves today to you, to your service, to expanding your kingdom, and to bringing you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.